Good morning. It's my great pleasure to uh, continue our study through Ecclesiastes. If you would please turn there in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I think it would be good just for reminder's sake to read the chapter in its entirety just so that we can gain greater clarity on what I believe Solomon is trying to get through to us in terms of seasonality and time in light of God's sovereignty. Let's read that together. Hear the word of the Lord. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Excuse me. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Please bow your heads with me and let's ask for help as we go through this study together. Lord, I just uh, come before you humbly, pleading with you for help in my weakness in much trembling and trepidation as I ponder this text and I ponder the needs of our congregation and I think about our current place in society. I think about Colorado Springs. I think about Colorado in general. I think about all the other churches here, Lord. And uh, I'm asking the hard question today, Lord, what sets us apart? What makes us different, Lord? Uh, Are we a place full of righteousness or are we a righteous place full of wickedness as Solomon uh, observes here? We like the many examples throughout history of the few, the few shining, glimmering lights of those who would have been trusting in You and faithful, Lord, to You in the midst of really dark times and struggles, in the midst of wars and battles. 
trusting you? Or are they the ones causing division and dividing and wars among themselves? Or that we are a camp divided that can't stand because our shields aren't jointly locked together and we're not moving in one procession toward the enemy and overthrowing his final boundary, his gates to his city and plundering his lands in Christ. Lord, I pray uh, for great victory today for us, Lord, that we would hear this text, what I believe Solomon is trying to convey to us to try to put perspective in our mind. That, Lord, we would be those who live in light of the end, those who understand the end, those have clarity around the end, that it changes our perspective as we engage in the regular daily tasks of life, as my brother said, the, the menial, simple tasks, the ones that seem... Um, Go, that go unnoticed, the ones that seem really simple or unimportant, Lord, that everything to you, as my brother shared this morning in Sunday school, every minor detail is important to you. And it really plays a critical role, whether we believe that or not, towards an ultimate aim and purpose that you are driving towards. And that is the end by which we must think of as we live our lives. So I pray for this study. I pray that you would help me faithfully deliver your word, that I'd be faithful to it, that it would in a sense, pierced to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that it would correct our thinking, instruct us and guide us, and Lord, transform us. Lord, make us a people after your own heart, in Jesus' name. So, uh, the uh, sermon today, as you might have noticed in your in your bulletin, is living in light of the end. Now, interesting, when I was going through this text, and I was thinking more about it, uh, really the title should be, Living in Light of the Light of the End. I was even thinking about that in our Sunday school this morning. We have to live in the light of the light of the end. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's talk about that. The end of what? The end of what? We have to ask. Really, it's our limited lives. right? Death is a primary theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the death of two different people groups. There are only two different people groups in the world. There are the wicked and the righteous. There are those who walk according to a path of destruction in Adam, and there are those who live in light uh, of Jesus Christ being made and conformed to His image, as we were talking about this morning, and being uh, sanctified by God and brought to a particular end that ultimately ends in a purpose in history um, to God's glory. All things are together working towards God's glory, and it's working to our glory for those who are called according to His purpose, as Paul says in Romans 8. So how should that impact the way we live? That's just the question that I wanted to answer this morning because I was thinking to myself, you know, a lot of Ecclesiastes is repeated themes. You guys notice that? Where time is brought up a lot. Again, like I mentioned, vanity. Vanity is this idea of vaporous existence. This whatever I seem to do or I set my hands to or I I invest my time and energy into um, really has no foundation, no grounding. If, if my life was merely limited to under the sun and that was my only vantage point and I didn't have the light of God's Word, I couldn't know what an end was. I, wouldn't, I would be making up really an end for myself. And that's really what most pagan philosophy is, is uh, oriented around. We talked about that a little bit this morning as well in our Sunday school. What do I mean by that? Pagan philosophy is trying to answer those big life questions. Nihilism says there really is no meaning. There is no purpose. We just kind of live in a meaningless, purposeless life. And existentialism tries to solve that problem by saying, no, 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 we have to make that up for ourselves. We have to ultimately come up. We are left, as Jean-Paul Sartre would say, a famous existentialist philosopher, he would say, 
that we are left to the burden of coming up with that on our own. And Solomon, the wisest man I believe ever to exist, says, no, that's quite the opposite. You're to live in the fear of God. That is your ultimate end. Why? Because as we know, we should be catechizing and teaching our children. Uh, what is the chief end of man? Go ahead, children. What's the chief end of man? Children, thank you. Appreciate that. As John would call us, right? Little children. Yes, so to, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're designed for that. That is the purpose by which we have been designed. And so, uh, to live rightly, you must be in alignment with that design. You must glorify God. You can't enjoy God unless you're glorifying Him. Uh, as a matter of fact, that is what I believe um, the very crux of the commandment that we read today, the fifth command. So as parents, we're to honor the Lord. We're to reflect Him. We're to image Him to our children. To raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord in the same understanding that we have as we live in light of the fear of God, right? We properly reverence Him and worship Him. We fear Him. We trust Him. What He has given to us uh, according to His Word. And then we convey that to our children. And what does it say, guys, in, in the, the fifth commandment? It's the only commandment, Paul says, in Ephesians that's given with a promise. He says that in Ephesians 6. You guys know what that promise is? It'll go well with them in the land. Now that's interesting. He's reiterating that in Ephesians 6. He's saying this is a commandment with a promise, parents. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and it will go well with them in the land. And I love how the caveat that it provides, it says that, well, inasmuch as this is working towards God's glory. right? So our greatest enjoyment, the very fabric of who we are, is going to come from glorifying God in our lives. It's that end, the telos, when I'm, saying, when I'm thinking of end, I'm talking about ultimate purpose, ultimate aim. It's that end, it's that purpose by which we should be living. It's that reference point that we should be doing all things. Interesting enough, um, something came up in, in our household, of a tough issue. I'm going to embarrass my older sons right now. Where um, my older sons were put on academic probation and not allowed to play football because they decided they didn't want to do their work. They got lazy. And they're not allowed to play for a few weeks. And so the, the athletic director reaches out to me and says, I'm really sorry to have to do this. This is the worst thing ever, man. This, the last thing any athletic director wants to do is have to pull the kids from going and competing. And my response was, no. I'm, I praise God for that. I'm so thankful for that. Thank you for doing that. Why? Because I need to disciple my children on what it means to be a good steward of the things that God has blessed them with. They need to live in light that they are Christ's. That's what they confess when they come to this table, to you all and to, to myself as their father. They need to live in light of Christ. And they need to be a good steward of that blessing and that gift that they have been given, this wonderful education. That's what they need to be discipled. Why? Because ultimately, I don't care about the football. I think it's good. I think it's important. But what's really important is that they live well in the land. And they need to learn this hard lesson. And it's been a good lesson for them. So I hope this hasn't been embarrassment, but that's a helpful application. Practically living in light of that, what do they need to do? They need to go, wow, I am Christ. I profess Christ as my Lord and Savior. The Lord has blessed me and invested in me this wonderful education. And I need to do it to the best of my ability. And a good consequence that they got to realize, and I say very good consequence, is they, have, they still go to the practice. Is it awesome not being able to play, but still having to go to the practice? No, it's not. No, you want to play. That's why you practice, right? So think about that. There's a very real consequence that's come very real to them, right? It's real time. 
that we've been warning them about for a long time now that finally came and it's like, dang, they had to learn the hard lesson without just listening to what their parents had to say to them. Trust me when I say, folks, this is exactly what God has given to us in His Word. He has given us some severe warnings, clear warnings, said you keep living in a, in a, in a direction that you think is going to bring you joy and not me glory, you are gravely missing. Gravely missing. And by the way, you're doing it, to quote a, a brother of mine, you're doing it to your own harm. God has given us His Word, the light of His Word, to protect us in a way from ourselves. And so with that in mind, let's, let's uh, look at uh, our text today. I'm going to start from verse 16. Solomon says here, Moreover, I saw under the sun, remember this idea that under the sun, these things are happening in our lives. It's, it's what we see as reality before us, under the sun. That in that place, or the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, so no, no, Solomon's reiterating a point here, and this is something that he keeps building upon and expounding upon, um, starting from Ecclesiastes 3, 1-8 through 8, in terms of time. He's saying that time is an instrument sovereignly used by God to expose the nature of every matter and work. Think about that. It's an inescapable reality that God's woven into the fabric of our existence, including us. Meaning, you could say you're upholding justice, yet time will show that you're not. You could say that you're righteous. You could be in this place of justice or in this place of righteousness. But time, over time, those deeds will be exposed. You guys, that is a pattern, a theme all throughout Scripture. Time will expose the reality of what you believe. It will come out in your actions. We can't help but do it. And time over time reveals that in us. And then one of the things he says under the sun is this place of justice where there is wickedness. The point he's contrasting is saying that shouldn't be, right? When we think of justice, should wickedness ever be associated with justice? Uh, hopefully all of you would say today, no, let it not be, right? So his primary concern is that a place of justice should be what? And the term in Hebrew is mishpat, an action taken to correct an injustice. If you have wickedness, you can't correct wickedness per se, but there's something else more at play here. There's a deeper issue that we need to really wrestle and think about. Those who are doing justice, and Solomon's saying they're not, obviously it's an injustice, they're, they're in a position where they should be correcting injustices, and they're not. They're the wicked ones. I guarantee some will come to mind. You'll think of a text right immediately. I can say it, and you'll almost finish it in your mind right away. You say, and there were those who called evil and good. Let's try that again. And there are those who call good and evil, see what I'm saying? So what's interesting is, how could wickedness, so mishpat, which should be an institution, an organization, or even an individual, should be making corrections to evil. And they're wicked. That shouldn't be. They're not really a place of justice, are they? In a place of righteousness, he uses a term called tzedakah which is a right relationship or an equitable relationship despite social differences or status differences. We've been discussing 1 Corinthians 11 down to the ground, the nitty-gritty core of it. I think I know that text probably better than most other texts in Scriptures now for those who have been following that text. Uh, but, but what's really interesting about 1 Corinthians 11, uh, not the head-covering passage, but actually the, the passage about um, uh, our relationships in the Lord's Supper, 
one of the key issues that Paul is addressing in the, in the church in Corinth is Sadak, a place of righteousness, a place where people are exalting themselves status-wise above one another, where they're gording themselves and getting hammered at the Lord's Supper instead of making preference to those who, who don't have as much. He says something along the lines of, do you not own, have your own houses to go and eat? Yet you gorge yourself at the Lord's Supper when here's a brother or sister who is broke and poor, a widow maybe who is in need or an orphan, and you just give yourself preference, you exalt your status above them. Isn't there, you know, don't you have a house to drink at? You're getting hammered with the Lord's wine, right? Kind of tough now to make your case, pardon me, John MacArthur, if they're getting hammered at the Lord's table, uh, saying it's mere grape juice. But I digress. The point being is, there's something about this place of justice and this place of righteousness that's flipped on its head. People are calling good evil and evil good. They're redefining that for themselves. When those things should be reflecting the character of God. But he notes it doesn't. At least it's not consistently. A place where you should be able to go and experience justice, is it's not happening. And a place where you should be able to experience the presence of righteousness is not happening. So then how should we understand righteousness and justice, biblically speaking? Uh, Solomon gave us the answer in Proverbs. The author of Proverbs, Proverbs 1, 2-7. through 7. Go to your Bibles and let's read that together. In Proverbs 1-7, through 7, he says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to who? The youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice how it's directly oriented to the youth. Why do I pick that text? Well, this is where he says knowledge of righteousness or justice, mishpat, and righteousness, tzedek, comes from. He uses those very terms in that text. He says righteousness, justice, equity, prudence, and discretion. This comes from what? What is its source? What is its beginning source? The fear of the Lord. So simply put, we can say that true knowledge or a justified true belief can only come or be founded in the fear of God. So that follows that we must do what is right as God defined it. We must uphold justice as God defines it. We must be equitable as God defines it. We must be prudent as God defines it. Where does God define every single one of those categories? All students of Scripture say. You guys not know? All students of the Scriptures say? Let me repeat the question. Where does God define every single one of those categories? What is right, justice, equitable, and prudent? Where? Where? The Word. His revealed will. This is where He describes it. This is where He defines it and makes it plain, doesn't He? It's so clear. It's so obvious. It should be at least to us, right? And by faith, we have to live according to that revealed knowledge. In philosophy, it's called epistemology. Paul says this 
he, he quotes as uh, epistemology just means theory of knowledge. Paul uh, says this very care- clearly in 2 Timothy 3.16-17. through 17. He says, you ready for this, Jace? Listen. Listen to, what, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. You memorized this passage just recently. I bet you'll be able to say it, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And I like what, what that completeness means. It really is able to meet all its demands. You are able in the understanding of God's Word, all of Scripture being breathed by God, to meet all of its demands in as much as you are willing to apply it. He also says that it has to be rightly divided unashamedly before God. This is His Word. And I've said this elsewhere. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, separate them, Father. Separate them by Your Word. Sanctify them by Your Word. Your Word is true. It is true. Now think about this. I've shared this before in the past, but I think it'll be helpful right now so that we can frame things up. Remember, as we're living our life in light of the end, think about this. And we've all heard this before. You guys can almost finish the sentence. I guarantee most of you at least can in here. A man is only as good as his word. That's really interesting. Why? Because the word represents the man. I give you a word. I give you my word when I'm going to do something. Is a commitment a promise, a guarantee, if you will. And if I'm only as good as it, what what does that make me out when I haven't followed through with what I said I was going to do? Do you trust me anymore? No. So it directly represents me and what has God said all throughout His Word. You must trust me. You must listen to me. And you got to listen really carefully. And by the way, when you deal with my Word, you better deal with it unashamedly before me knowing that it's going to equip you for every good work, that it's going to reprove you, it's going to correct you, it's going to give you an understanding of righteousness, an understanding of justice, equity, prudence. It's going to give you the ability to discern between good and evil, a way to live your life life in such a way where it'll be the good life. It'll go well with you in the land. Okay? So we need to allow God to define those things. Now, let me take something one step further here. And uh, um, Clayton this morning did an excellent job of explaining this much better than I ever could. Um, But I want you to hear what Dr. Bonson, Craig Bonson, Christian philosopher, if you're unfamiliar with him, um, he uh, was an apologist, an amazing man, great, uh, a great uh, thinker, and very cogent thinker, very helpful thinker. I want you to hear what he has to say about uh, the createdness of facts. And uh, Clayton brought, the, uh, brought up a really interesting point. And I'm going to quote him this morning here with this. It says, um, since God is the creator of all facts, he's the creator of all facts, okay? And his comprehensive interpretation precedes all states of affairs. The reference point of all knowledge must be a revelation from him. Think about that. So he's the creator of, him, of the facts. It's his comprehensive interpretation that must precede all of those things. He is the chief reference point for all those facts. Any knowledge that you have a claim to would have been something revealed to you about God. Something declared to you about God and God declaring those things about himself. There's nothing that we can know outside of those things. He goes on to say, he says, otherwise, if that's not the case, if this is not true about facts and not true that there is a creator, listen to what he says, we force our own distorted and groundless categories 
upon misapprehended facts. All he's getting at is saying, you're basically making it up as you go, if I can simplify it. You don't really have a true apprehension of what that fact is. I love uh, what Dr. Bonson says elsewhere. Facts don't interpret themselves, do they? Facts of reality do not interpret themselves. So if facts don't interpret themselves, they must require some form of interpretation. What provides you the framework for that interpretation? Your own grounding? Distorted, groundless grounding? Or must a revelation be given to you saying, that's what that is, that's what that means, this is what that's for, and this is why? Then you can begin to understand and grow in knowledge. But if you don't fear the living God, who gives you that revelation and provides you that insight, and you say, nope, I'm actually left to kind of figure all those things out on my own, you are doing it in a distorted, groundless way, he goes on to say. In fact, what, is that, what it is is a result of God's activity. If this is in fact a, uh, a result of God's int- activity, it will never be given a true interpretation unless understood in terms of the Creator and His plan. Meaning, you cannot interpret reality rightly unless you know the Creator, you understand why He made the things that He made, and, and you're, you're, you understand the, that this is made according to His particular plan. You'll never have a true idea of what those things are, meaning you will not have real knowledge. You'll have some idea of what you think might be knowledge, but you won't have real knowledge. He goes to complete this point. To attempt an interpretation of the world or its details on one's own is to assume erroneously the non-createdness of facts, meaning you don't believe in a creator. You're an atheist. I think you brought up the point today, Clayton, about practical atheism. That is practical atheism. If you don't believe there's a creator that created all things and provides the interpretation for all things, then you're an atheist. You're acting and you might be acting and pretending like a Christian, but if you're walking around thinking that God hasn't provided uh, you insight on how you ought to live in his world, you're an atheist. Now you might not even think you might even be aware of your atheism. And I'll go on to explain that further. If the revelation of God is turned away from so that his sovereign control over all things is ignored, the resultant assumption on that that every that anything can happen in history and that all things must be organized and assigned meaning by the human mind will eventually issue in skepticism. Fate rules the day, and subjective arbitrariness is the quicksand of all reasoning. One either begins his philosophizing with God, who comprehends all things and to, who delivers an apprehensible revelation, or he begins with an incomprehensible and inapprehensible world. If the world, therefore, is to be known we must consult its creator. How do we do that? We consult its creator by the word of God. And I love what, what Clayton said. He, he gives these implications. If we don't believe this, then there is no meaning in anything. If we don't believe this, that we believe that anything that happens has no significance, that nothing matters, that nothing matters. And that really everything and anything derives its meaning from our limited vantage point. This is exactly what Solomon's saying about having a, a limited view of under the sun. This is what he's driving at. If you're living life in the end, and if you're a nihilist, and you think there is no meaning or purpose to life, how's your life going to look? If you think that you have to make that up on your own, like an existentialist does, you apply meaning based on your own subjective experience, what's your life going to look like? 
What's society going to look like? It's going to look like people calling good evil and evil good whenever it's convenient for them. And it's going to look like people who kind of make up a place of righteousness in their own image instead of God's. However, I agree with Clayton. Because God exists and because God has created everything, because He is sovereign over all things and controls all things, nothing is meaningless. Every little thing that happens has theological significance and everything matters. And nothing has meaning in itself and in and of itself. It's God who subscribes meaning to all things. And if it's God who subscribes meaning to all things, we need to fear Him, honor Him, respect Him, and trust Him if we expect to live in His world and have somewhat of an enjoyable life here. So biblical knowledge in that case is going to drive our decision-making. In that other case, in terms of the wicked pattern of life, non-biblical knowledge, or falsely so-called as we just discovered here, leads to non-biblical decision-making. And non-biblical decision-making is foolish. It leads to skepticism. And I like what Dr. Bonson says, the sinking sands of human autonomy. You're just left in skepticism. You're sinking. I've had people arguing with me about these things. And it's like, well, let me provide an, an, a, a perspective that I have as I'm listening to you argue with me about these things. Like They, they totally reject the, the Word of God right, as the foundation. The Bible's not my foundation. I'm my own foundation. I said, that's a lot like you sinking in quicksand and telling me how stupid I am as I'm trying to help you get out of the quicksand, right? That's what that looks like. And that's what apologetics looks like. That's what evangelizing looks like often. So here's something that we need to know. We have to be very clear about when it comes to reality, when it comes to society, when it comes to people that we deal with and interact with. We have to know that there are deep-seated physical and spiritual troubles that affect and impact the way we make decisions. And that's true in all of us. There's a battle in our hearts, and you guys have all experienced this, I personally do as well, where we want to do what's right in our own eyes. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We face those kinds of decisions on the daily. You're probably facing it right now. There's a reason why some people are not in this room right now. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and define the way that we do it. There are people that didn't show up to church today. Unwilling to sit and listen to the sermon today. Unwilling to hear from the Word of God today. Because why? They want to define what's right in their own eyes. They want to come up with their own way of doing things. When God says we ought to live a certain way, it ought to look a certain way. How much more so, I think this is what Paul, the crux of what Paul's trying to drive at, is that accentuated when one is exalted to a higher status, like a pastor, like a city ruler or a leader? How much more is that accentuated when someone goes, well, no, yeah. and you know, God, I know you said this, but man, I'm going to really want to do this right. I'm going to do this my own way. I'm going to you know, kind of make up what I think church should look like in my own image. I'm going to make up what society ought to look like in my own image. That's way more comfortable way more acceptable. There are people today in this room, and some not, who want to make our church look a certain way based on their own ideas of what church should look like, based on their own ideas of what pastors should look like, based on their own ideas of what city leaders should look like. Well, I have news for you. God hates that. He wants you to live the way He defines things and He describes things. We need to live according to His Word. 
Let's look at those struggles for a brief moment. What, what does it look like when places of justice who are led by leaders who are exalted to maybe in, in some sense an undue status um, fail to uphold mishpat? They don't deal with inequities. They don't instruct society the right way. They don't protect, right? What happens when Sadek is not being upheld? Righteousness by leaders, by people who are exalted, and it's perverted. In the place of justice, what you'll find patterned throughout Scripture, you'll hear things like, and fill in the blank did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> So-and-so did evil, this whatever group it might be, whatever leader it might be, did evil in the sight of the Lord. For those who have been um, a part of our Sunday school study uh, through redemptive history, you'll find this as a consistent pattern. You'll be able to say, hearty amen, that for the most part, this is, this is really a reflection of who we are as people uh, for the most part. We do often evil in the sight of the Lord. What is that evil? What is right in our own eyes? We just finished the book of Judges, and it says, and I quote the very last words of Judges, and there was no king in the land, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Which, if anybody knows just, uh, Judges very well, it was a total disaster. Israel had basically fallen off after Joshua had died, and Israel slowly descended into total chaos. And then we're going to be working through First Samuel uh, and the kings here just to discover how much more of a disaster it becomes through Israel's history and redemptive history. So what are some of our common problems? What are the patterns in, uh, they did evil in the sight of the Lord? One I can think of that popped immediately in my head are the social justice wokeness warriors. Okay, Think about that. Here's a justice that is wicked. Right? I think it's a, a, an amazing example of that. They're defining what mishpat should look like in society based on their own understanding of reality. They think that you must be woke in order to, order to understand anything. And if you disagree with them, well, you just haven't figured it out. You're just blinded. You haven't woken yet. That's what the term means. You're just not awakened to social injustice and you're unwilling to stop it. And because of the color of your skin, you're just desperately blinded. You're incapable of understanding it because of the color of your skin. And your social, uh, the social pressures and the social constructs that you live in and made up for yourself, you're just stuck in it. You can't get out of it. You're helplessly uh, captured by it. So, I'm sure you guys will be able to easily answer this. Are the social justice wokeness warriors actually upholding mishpat effectively? No. So, think about this. Just rhetorical. What is their end? When it comes to everything that I've just explained so far, what is their end? What does God say their end is? Based on verse 16. We have governmental issues, don't we? <laughs> There's no such thing as a perfect government in society. We know that. I don't think there ever will be until the return of Christ. There might be better reflections than some, but let's look at our own present circumstance. We have congressional abdication, where Congress just can't come to a decision on something and is unwilling to, uh, unless there's a supermajority like there is in our state, where they just press through whatever they want, whatever is right in their own eyes. And then the governor, happily, who is just right in alignment with all of them, supermajority means, if you're unaware of that term, is the House and the Senate, the two... Uh, legislative branches of our of our, gover our government um, are both uh, majority led by one party, and the governor who signs everything into law, the final executive officer of our governing authority, he's in the same party. So basically, what they do is go, 
yeah, we want this, and then just push it through the system. There's really no pushback because the minority can't push back and encourage any sort of changes um, or stopping of the law, of shutting down bills to be passed. And if you're wondering right now why there's this landslide of horrible legislation in Colorado, it's because you have a group of wicked people legislating wicked things all the way through to the end with, with zero resistance. Okay? We also have a problem in our federal level where the Congress just can't get along, can't figure things out, can't solve for things, and they actually defer their responsibility to whom? The Supreme Court. And what does the Supreme Court do? They start making laws. Do you realize that our Supreme Court is not a lawmaking branch of our government? They uphold the law. They define it, right? In the sense, uh, here's what the law means. And then the executor of the law is the executive branch, the presidency. So when the Supreme Court starts making laws, the Congress starts abdicating their responsibility. Who steps in with the power vacuum? Your favorite president, Biden. Starts making all of his executive orders. Just starts ruling by decree. And the, and the lawmakers are going, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. We don't want to have to deal with that. Supreme Court goes, sure, why not, right? You know, until you start bringing in more Supreme Court powers. And then here's what happens. This is really interesting. This is where you know some political jockeying is happening. Where our branches, even though they're defined a certain way, are not behaving nor acting according to those uh, definitions. Here's what's even more interesting. So when we're going to use Roe v. Wade as an example, this is where the justice is not holding up mishpat. Okay, I'm getting somewhere with this, I promise. Mishpat to them, when Roe v. Wade existed, was, see, it's the law. Law of the land. Constitutional. You know, all those arguments pointing. The Supreme Court upholds it, right? They're pointing to that. And then we get these new leaders that come in who are appointed by different, like a, a varying party. I'm not going to use the names. Comes in and says, because it doesn't matter. The parties don't matter at this point. They both do it. Both sides do it. The other party comes in and says, well, we're going to put in justices that will balance things out, maybe, you know, which is a good system, and disagree with you. Oh, we're worried that you're going to overthrow the law of the land. Hint, hint. Roe v. Wade was not a law. Roe v. Wade was a Supreme Court ruling. It wasn't a law. Congress never put that into law. Yet, one party was saying, that's the law of the land. The Supreme Court ruled on it. Then what happened when a party who disagreed with that party came in and said, we're going to put different justices in there to challenge that idea. Guess what ended up happening? You guys all know. They overthrew it. Oh, so guess what happened? The political leaders go, we don't like that. We're going to put in more justices to get a greater majority. We're going to take those justices out. Maybe we need to rethink the Supreme Court altogether. And they politically jockey to get their way, to push through their way. My friends, that is wicked. That is not the reason why our structure was founded the way that it was. There were checks and balances for a reason. Why? Because certain groups want to come in in the majority and rule according to what? What is right in their own eyes. Are those Christian leaders right now? For the most part, no. And if they are, they're also not upholding Mishpat because they're not taking a stand. They don't faithfully represent you. That's a problem in our governing uh, order. Okay, It's a huge problem. That's something that needs to be worked through. That's something that we need to work toward reform in. We all need to work collectively together, starting in our city here and on. Okay, And then you have legal abuse. I'm sure you guys have, I certainly experienced this. Um, legal abuse, what I mean by that is that when the law is used as an instrument for persecution of those who don't share the same ideals. 
A good example of that is going back to our social justice warriors when Antifa decided to take the law into their own hands. It wasn't really law. It was just total chaos. They just started burning cities down in the name of not holding in, you know, justice. They're burning like their own friends and neighbors' businesses down. Destroying cars, destroying entire cities. Chaz was a great example of that. If you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, just go look that up on YouTube. There's funny videos out there about that. Um, Chaz was a city of lawlessness. It was them overthrowing the law and, and then giving, you know, sticking one to the man. And in them, in them sticking one to the man, they created an even more lawless society than there already was. There was just no laws. They took laws into their own hands. There's also been, you know, in terms of use of persecution for... I was preaching out of Planned Parenthood and I called a man a coward who flipped me off as he's driving away who had spent hours waiting in a parking lot for a young lady that he dropped off at Planned Parenthood. Usually when that happens, when they're waiting that long and the young lady was a very emotional interaction between them before she went in and she's wearing comfortable clothes, there's a very good indication that that person's going to have an abortion. We're calling out to them. We're pleading with them. They're saying, don't keep your child. If you're going in there for an abortion, say we're pleading with you to keep your child. Okay. And what ended up happening um, is this gentleman, you know, getting all irate, ranting around the parking lot and preaching to him, saying, you need to be a man. You need to go in there. If that, if that girl you dropped off today is having an abortion, I would encourage you to go in there and stop her from doing that. And if you don't, you're a coward. You're unwilling to help her. Whether you are responsible for the child or not, you're encouraging her to kill her unborn child. And as he was driving away, Stuck his hand out the window just to crack enough to get his hand out there and I called him a coward. Well, he called the police. And the police took his side, took his word for it to the point where they filed a harassment charge against me saying it was inciting violence and cussing at him. I said, "How do you? is, it, is that illegal, by the way? I'm like, I'm not using cuss words. Is it illegal? And at the time, it was really hilarious, a group of people in their car were just spewing out vitriol, the most profane language you've ever heard, flipping me off. Right, just a group of people who were with us. I went, go. There's another cop right there, and I said, go arrest them, get them. Look what they're doing. I'm pressing harassment charges against them. We're not talking about them. We're talking about you right now. Oh, so I want to press charges against them who just drove by. He's just sitting here. Can you go, like, get him? Right. The example is, no. We're going to impose this justice on you. By the way, we're not going to take any information. No, no witness recordings from them. All the people who are here listening to what you were saying to this guy who flipped you off. I said, is it legal to tell someone they're a coward? No, that's what I did. I called him a coward. Here's, here's what it is. Well, he said you were trying to start a fight with him. I was like, so you just listen to everything he says. What, what, what made you think he has a man of high character? Well, we just saw him a minute ago just ranting and raving around, flipping us off and screaming all sorts of profanities at us. Well, I talked to him for a few minutes and I think what he's saying is legitimate. So just... You, so now you just make up the laws you go. Is that how it goes? That's how harassment works. He said, she said, and you're just going to take his word for it and that's what I was doing and you're going to give me a ticket right now? Yeah. And you're going to have to appear in court. <laughs> okay. That's an abuse of the law, ladies and gentlemen. I end up having to go through the entire court system up to the point where they were going to have a trial and my lawyer's telling the, the, pub, the, uh, the uh, um, district attorney who yelled at my lawyer and said, you think I don't have a case? And he's like, no, no, it's actually going to be a real embarrassment for Colorado Springs here if you continue to push this issue. We're willing to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court if you want to take it that far. Why? Because we see it as an opportunity to educate the public on the wickedness of this court system. You're using this as an uh, instrument to punish my client. That's not good. 
that's not constitutional. And this is going to be a huge embarrassment for you. We don't base cases off of hearsay. You need to throw this out. And you know what the judge ended up doing? As they were getting ready to select the jury, took a look at it and went, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And my lawyer comes back out and says, man, that was a bummer. I really hope that we could take this out. That would have been really bad for them. And it would have been horrible. So they use the law as an instrument to punish people they disagree with. That is wicked. That needs to be reformed. That's happening in our city right now. It happened to me. And it's happening to a ton of other people. And it's going to start happening more unless folks like us make a stand and start working toward those reforms. What about the place of righteousness? What about the place of righteousness? Here's an example that came to mind almost instantly. People game worship. They game worship and they game the church. And what do I mean by that? And I use scare quotes around church, by the way. They game it. They game the system. You guys are familiar with that term. What does it look like to game the church? Well, I live in a way that I want to outside of this congregation throughout the week. Um, yet, at the end of the week, I turn from my ways and I repent and I ask for forgiveness. And I come and I worship with the saints thinking that I'm okay. Examples like this happened in the Old Testament where they would do whatever they want and they used the actual temple sacrificial system in a, in a way to sort of purchase God's grace back. So they would go through all the things. Hey, God, we're doing all the things. Here we're offering the sacrifices, but we live like hell during the week. Another example in the, in the Middle Ages, uh, Brian and I were talking about this last week, was the purchase of indulgence or three, right? You guys familiar during Luther's time, the, you know, in the Reformation, when Tetzel, uh, or Tetzel, not Tetzel, Tetzel was selling indulgences, and uh, he was basically, they were basically purchasing God's grace. And Luther brought up a really great point to the Pope. He said, well, why don't you just open up the treasure troves of God's grace and just give it to everyone? Why are you charging for it? That's filthy lucre. That's messed up. Why would you charge for something that you could just give freely? You know, a papal bull is something that's just like, Make a papal bull that everyone has God's grace. Praise God, right? Everybody's free from their debts in Christ. No, you're charging for God's grace. That's wicked. It's perverse. They have that empty confession and repentance. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, the confession of like, well, I asked for forgiveness. I said I was sorry. And then 24 hours later, you're doing the exact same thing or worse, right? Because you haven't truly repented. No, I repented. No, you're speaking Christianese. You're saying the right words, but I'm watching your feet. I'm watching what you're doing, right? Question, what is their end? What about superficial fellowship? You guys know what I'm talking about? I coined the phrase, chip and dip, bless me club, right? We just don't have any relationships with anybody in the church. Kind of hang out, shake hands, kiss babies, pat butts, and on the way we go, right? Kind of just hang out for a few minutes, say all the Christian stuff, tell each other how we think we should live better, quote a couple scriptures about the way I feel about those scriptures, and then we move on, right? People are doing that here. People are doing that all over the place. Where's the depth of relationship, right? There is no depth in those types of situations. Why? Because people fear transparency. They're worried about what people might really think of them if they knew what their life was really like when they lived in their houses in front of their family. They're worried about what life really looks like when they finally get to know them. And they have a couple beers and they start losing their minds. They might fear what it might really be like if they discovered what kind of abusive person they are behind the scenes. Because let me tell you what, there's a huge statistic of nominal Christian men who are the most abusive men uh, in all of society 
which is really interesting to me, even more so than pagan men. They name Christ and then they go and abuse their wives. They act a certain way here in church. Everybody looking good, right? Everybody lined up, children all in order. They go home and they're a total nightmare to deal with. There are Christians like that probably in here. I don't know who you are. I'm not calling out anybody particular, by the way. I don't think I am. But if that's you, boy, repent now. God's going to deal with you fiercely. That superficial relationship also ends in a failure to grow because they're worried about difficulty, because they're worried about that kind of exposure. They're worried about what it might look like if they actually have to build relationships once in their life and work through things and and actually deal with difficult stuff. Last time I checked, the light of God's Word says, do it, even though it's really hard, even though you might really struggle through it, even though it might be something that you're really wrestling with, even though you might not like this person that much. You might have a really hard time with them. Let me warn you against something. Stop talking about them behind their back. Go to them directly. Speak to them directly. Right? If you have an issue, go to the person directly. It says even if you're struggling too much, if it's really bothering you and you have a problem, leave your gift at the altar. Don't come to the Lord's table until that issue is reconciled. Right? Because superficial relationship looks like, hey man, hey, it's really great to see you. Man, I don't like that guy. Woo! I'm going to go ahead and vent about that person to my spouse for hours on end. And then we come, hey, so good to see you. (laughs) And then we leave. Right? It's messed up. God knows your heart. God knows your heart. Stop doing that. Actually open yourself to some pain. Actually humble yourself. Lower yourself really... It's hard. Some humble pie, man. I've had to eat a ton of that in my lifetime. But you know what? The kind of relationships that I have where humble pie had to get ground down by the dozen, right? I have real deep, solid relationships that have lasted for 20 years. Can I share a couple examples for you guys? Let me share a couple real quick. You're going to crack up when you hear this, okay? I went to Africa to to take um, medical supplies to Sudanese refugees, and I spent four and a half months in the, the Uganda bush. All right, if there's any crucible for any whatever you got pride going on in there, anything that's not Christian, it's coming out of you in a matter of a few weeks. Not only are you going through incredible culture shock, you're wondering, man, am I even a Christian anymore? I hate this. I hate everything about it. I hate the people around me. I hate it. I want to be out of here. I want to go home to my comfort zone. That gets stripped out of you, right? The dross comes to the top, and then, then you're just in this raw place. Well, I, was, I had a very close friend of mine to this day. Uh, we were playing chess, okay, and this is week. This is a, a, this is a month or so in. I mean, we are well in. The crucible is in full effect, okay, at this point. And getting to the point, I'm winning. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm beating him. He's really hard to play. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm getting. Him. I was close to checkmate. And what does he do? He looks at it and he can see my. He sees what's coming. The end is inevitable. You know what he does? This guy <laughs> sweeps the sweeps the, the uh, pieces off the board and walks away. And I'm like. Right now, why didn't you let me win? That is so messed up, bro. You're supposed to let me win. And I hated this man in my heart. I, I could have slayed him right then and there, right? I mean, that was bad. And I'm like, I'm not I'm not a Christian, dude. I need to nope. I'm not a Christian. I can't be. You guys need to send me home. There's no way I could think this way about this guy. Right? And I went into silent mode for months. I mean, it was like or weeks. I was struggling. It was just a personal like torment inside my soul. Like, I'm not even a Christian. I can't hate this guy so much for not winning a game of chess. And I'm going through all this battle in my mind. And then one day, we're, at, we're out on a car ride together. We're doing a safari, which was not a safari. I can explain that later. It was terrifying. It was like Jurassic Park, 
super scary. We had a lion chase our car, you guys. I mean, I think I've said that before. Anyway, super scary. Um, it's just running alongside of us, growling at us. I'm like, that's a full-grown lion, dude. And we're all in the car together. And you just come to the point where we're like, we're going to die anyway. We're going to die out here. It's all coming to an end. And you know what that did for me? It put, put it really into perspective. I said, you know what? Why, why am I so angry at him for the stupidest thing ever? Look at it. He's a precious dude. I love this guy. And you know what? We got over it. I started laughing at myself. And I'm like, man, I had to. I'm like, bro, I was so wrong for being so mad at you. But you were dead wrong for not letting me win. And he goes, yeah, man, you're right. I should have let you in. You know? And it was done. Yet anger and animosity and bitterness had grown in my own heart towards him and him toward me. He was mad at me for being frustrated at him. I'm like, dude, you're, you're a jerk. You should have apologized for that, right? So anyway, I get that to the point is we do that to each other. That's happening right now in our church. And it shouldn't be named among us. That's The place of the righteous should be a place where we are recognized and acknowledging who we are in Christ. That we have been forgiven. We need to humble ourselves and stop being so bitter and frustrated and angry at each other. Why do you think Jonathan and I have spent so much time in topical teachings from this pulpit over the last few weeks? On that very subject, why do you think we're talking about generosity and alignment and a reflection of God's heart? Why do you think we're talking about those things, you guys? Jonathan, I know he's an expository teacher. He wants to teach through a book, but we have these issues as your pastors that we see right now, and we go, man, that has to be dealt with. And when I came across this test, I went, dang. That's it, bro. Drop the blam. So here it is. Consumeristic is the final point. Consumeristic leverage, I call it. Another thing that Christians really struggle with. It's not just in our church. It's been here. It might still be here. It might be expressed directly after the end of this message. It's when the pews govern the pulpit. The pews govern the pulpit. How? They want to get what they want, when they want it, how they want it, and the threat of fire the leadership or leaving. And sadly, in our effeminate churches, that's typically coming from the women. Man, I don't like how he talks. That guy's rough. He's a little bit too direct. He's mean. I don't like the way he says things. He's brutal. He's abusive. All kinds of stuff has come out of people's mouth, particularly about me, which is really hard for me to hear. Because that's not my attitude. I love you guys. I care about you guys. I'm a passionate man if you haven't noticed that. And I guarantee you that what I'm saying, yes, it comes across strongly. It needs to. There's points and times in our walks where we just need to be slapped out of, we get stuck in a rut thinking the way we think. And yes, your faithful brother, your Peter, sons of thunder kind of brother is going to come along and go, oh, stop, knock that off. You're being stupid right now. We need that in our lives. One of the things the women are going to be studying right now in the It's a Good to Be a Man book is a lot about that, how the women run and dictate the church through their husbands in the name of spirituality. That's madness. Why? Because guess what they do? They start uh, enslaving their husbands to their feelings and emotions going, ha, ah, man, I'm just going to make your life miserable until I finally get my way. That's sad. That is really sad. And it leaves me with this point. A consumeristic leverage looks at it like, I'm not getting what I want out of this. This is not fitting my standard. And so as consumers, going to church is like picking McDonald's or Arby's. I'm liking their sandwich menu today. I'm getting what I want from here. They actually are doing a great combo meal. You hear things like, I'm not really getting much out of the Sunday school. What? You got, why aren't you showing up? Well, I'm not getting much out of it. What do you mean you're not getting much out of it? Show up, bro. 
Be a blessing to everyone else around you. Be an encouragement to your pastor, your teacher, who's leading this and really working hard on trying to pour into this. I mean, you're not getting much out of it. Why don't you start contributing? It's not about you. I think Clayton said that like 15 times today. It's not about us. It's about the glory of God. You know what God loves? A family that loves each other. A body that loves each other. A group of people. That place of righteousness that looks a lot like a place of righteousness and not a place of wickedness. What is their end? So what, should, what perspective and conclusion here should we live in light of? The light that we have been given of, of the end. So really, this message could be a light of the light of the end, right? In light of the light of the end. He goes on. Uh, Solomon goes on in verse 17 through 22. I said, my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time for every matter and every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, all return to the dust. Who knows whether then this, where the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of man or the beast goes down. So again, from a limited perspective under the sun, what differentiates the man from the beast? He, uh, Solomon says not a thing. But though, what we do know here is that there is a destiny for both of those creatures. One for the man and one for the beast. Even though both die the same, man's works will ultimately be brought into judgment despite what they believe during their lives and their futile attempts to escape that reality. Listen to that. Did you guys hear that? Listen. Your works will ultimately be brought into judgment despite what you believe. Okay? You might say, oh man, there's you know, atheists here today. No, I don't believe that. Listen, they will be brought into judgment. And you might even try to escape that. You might try to escape that. So then he goes on into verse 22. I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And that Jonathan prayed, that's something we should rejoice in. As a matter of fact, the pagan can rejoice in their work. And sometimes, guys, it's really wild to me. Uh, I witness on a regular basis, including yesterday, pagans really rejoicing in their work. And they do that much more so than sometimes Christians do. I'm blown away. We won a medal in the Great American Beer Festival. And I'm watching pagans just like, yeah, I do love each other. Everything's awesome, right? And it's the greatest thing. And Christians are always having to like have the mopey face around and be the most stinky one on the job site, right? For the most part. Not helpful. Always complaining. Some of the most difficult people you have to work with. I'm sure some of you have experienced that out there today. Knock that off. Stop that. That is not righteousness. Stinky face. It's not. Stop being the jerk. The jerk for Jesus. Start working super hard. Glorify God in your work. Be a blessing to the business that you work for. Bless them to the point. Bless their socks off. Be the kind of person that is unreplaceable, not the one that's like, dang, I'm so happy he left. Right? Be the one they're like, oh no, we're losing an incredible asset. I could go on, but we're running long on time. You know who can bring to see what will be after him, what will be after this man, this woman? who either lives in light of life only under the sun or lives in light of eternity, God can. Micah says that clearly. He's told you, O oh man, what is good. God has. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Paul says in Acts, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day, when? Which He will judge the world in righteousness. Right? Uh, Sadek. 
by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And let's read that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at what this assurance looks like and we're going to close with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-26. through 26. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you had believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Look what Paul says about himself. He was the worst. He was killing Christians. Imagine that. He's showing up at a, at a, at a love feast, and you're like, dude, that's Paul. He's killing, he killed fools. I don't trust that guy, right? He would be a little bit harder to trust. But he says what? By the same grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you also believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and, and you're still dead in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. If life is limited to you just returning to the dust, only in this life, under the sun, we are to be most pitied. Now listen to this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by, uh, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who will belong to Christ. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so looking forward to that time. I'm looking forward to the end of and the places of justice. Where justice should reign, wickedness reigns. I'm looking forward to the point where in the places of righteousness, congregations all over America, all over the world, where it should reign. Wickedness is currently prevailing so much to the point where the majority of even Christ's words and the apostles' words were corrections about divisions and problems and all kinds of sort, all manners of evil among us. As Amos was called to the northern kingdom, as he was compelled to go and address their idolatry, he, he nails it on the head when he says to them, I hate your sacrifices. The Lord says, I hate it. Stop doing it. It's worthless to me. Because you are gaming the system. You are coming, you are showing up, and it is just merely 
and outward appearance of righteousness when inwardly you are ravenous wolves. As Jesus Christ uh, called the, the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Lord, let that not be said of us. Lord, today change our hearts. Change our minds. If that's true, Lord, help us. Help us humble ourselves. Help us come to our senses, Lord. Help us stop heaping up bitterness and frustrations and allowing the, those things to get the best of us and destroy relationships that could be beautiful and wonderful, that could go through difficulties over time. And Lord, um, have a, an incredible foundation in You because, Lord, it's You at work in us, uh, conforming us to Your image. You promise that You will sanctify us. You promise that You will grow us in unity for those who are Yours. And those who are not today, Lord, we pray that You would grant them repentance according to Your loving kindness and Your mercy. And we pray that in Jesus' name.